0: Welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Today then, um, I'm going to talk about restoration. So we have obviously looked at... um, god's ideal for sacred sexuality god's mandate for one flesh we looked at that and then we looked at what happens when we kind of um go against that and the repercussions of it we then looked at how to actually steward our masculinity and femininity because that is actually at the core of our sexuality and then we looked at how we love and celebrate one another and how we then take that into marriage and how we have great marital sex and so to tie it all up i feel that um what God really wants to do now is to address those very tender, sensitive issues that we haven't been able to address so far, but that, are crucial to us walking in victory in this area so we're going to look at um, issues such as abuse issues such as abortion we're going to look at what happens when there's domestic violence you know sexual violence that's happening and when someone has been abused or within a marriage so we're going to address those things because restoration must happen and it gets messy but Even though it gets messy, it's so that we can be taken to that place of beauty. So I just pray. In fact, I am going to pray. Father, I just thank you so much because you are a God of restoration. You redeem. You restore. You truly do bind up our wounds. You do heal broken hearts. And we just thank you that we can trust you. And I thank you, God, for every single person here. And I thank you for their journey and even the journey that they've been on in the last six months. And I thank you that this is a divine encounter that you have orchestrated month upon month upon month. And thank you for what you're going to do today, because it's not only going to seal and not only going to mend broken hearts but it's going to allow us to be vessels that can help restore other people and not just other people but this entire generation according to your mandate father so i just yield myself to you i just thank you for clarity i just thank you that i won't get in the way of what you want to do holy spirit so we just most welcome your ministry in jesus name we pray amen Okay, so um, firstly, we're going to go to Genesis 1, to 28. Okay, so God said, Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make mankind in our image, after our likeness, and let them have complete authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the tame beasts, and over all of the earth, and over everything that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image and likeness of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it using all its vast resources in the service of God and man and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and over every living creature That moves upon the earth. Okay, so what we see in um, these three verses is crucial foundational scriptures that tell us who we are and tell us what we're called to do. So, firstly, God says that we're image bearers of Christ. That's our identity, that's who we are. And then God shares with us that we are actually called as men and women, fully representing God, fully bearing his image as males and as females and fully as males and females, we are to go into the earth. We are to be fruitful. We are to multiply. We are to take dominion. The thing with sin is that it actually undermines this because it undermines God's uh, original order. However, sexual brokenness undermines our very identity. Because we are called to be men and women walking in the fullness of our sexuality as image bearers of God and going and being, um, you know, fruitful and multiplying and taking dominion. But when we actually engage in sexual sin, because it's a sin against our own body, our very identity then gets compromised because the thing with sexual sin is that we know from what we've studied so far that when we engage in sexual sin, it actually affects our um our physical man, it affects our spiritual man, our soulish man. We, we um, looked in the first session and in, in the second session at how we have been created with bonding mechanisms. And those bonding ne- mechanisms have been created to foster loyalty to one person, to your spouse. And so when we then engage in sexual intercourse outside of marriage, we then actually end up um, bonding ourselves to people that are not actually our spouse. And so when it says in Genesis 2 that, you know, a man and woman will get married and that they will become one that they will cleave to one another they will dabak one another They will be one flesh Ikad. so what we end up doing is having that type of connection that type of um, loyalty with someone who's not actually our spouse as a result of it soul ties are formed as a result of it who we actually are as a person part of our purpose that mandate that said go out and be fruitful as a man as a woman that very identity is being compromised, who we actually are, what we carry, the design that we carry, our purpose, our personality, our overall identity gets compromised when we engage in sexual sin. And so sexual sin is not just a sin against our own body, but because it compromises what God has given us to do, it's a sin against the body of Christ. And then on top of that, not only is it a sin against the body of Christ, but it's a sin against this assignment that God gave to us in Genesis 1, where he told us to be fruitful and to multiply and take dominion. Because if we're engaged in sexual sin, then we are not fully ourselves. We, our belief system and how we see ourselves and how we see our identity is so compromised that we are not able to actually fulfill that mandate anyway. So when the body of Christ is in sexual sin, just like Pastor Rod said this morning, that what happens to one person affects the rest of the body. So even though we may be walking in purity or, you know, whoever may be walking in purity, anyone who is walking in sexual sin in the body of Christ then dilutes that mandate that the body of Christ actually has to be cultural reformers. You know, we have the mandate to actually change the world and to take dominion, but we've not been able to actually do that. And sexual sin has a massive role to actually play. And the only way anyone can really be free from sexual sin is by getting a fresh revelation of who they are in God. That original identity that said you are an image bearer of me, of Father, Son, and Spirit, you as a man, as a woman, are an image bearer of me, that's what it will take for someone to get that revelation, to discover or to rediscover what they actually really are, who they really are. They are image bearers of God. Only that can truly restore someone caught up in sexual sin. Only when someone recognizes that they were not created for a lesser type of intimacy. People need to understand, and this is basically the bottom line, everyone needs to get the revelation, and this takes us back full circle to where I started six months ago. We have been created for a higher love. People in this world have been created for a higher love, a supreme love a love so supreme that it doesn't abuse, it doesn't violate, it doesn't shun, it doesn't misunderstand, it doesn't, um, you know, in any way undermine, it doesn't take, it gives, a love that God wants to give us. And so the key is in us as a church being conformed to the image of Christ And as we become conformed to the image of Christ, we are able to lead others into that same revelation of who they have been created to be. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have done, restoration is available in Christ, even if you're a paedophile even if you are a rapist, even if you are someone who has been abusing your spouse. There's not a thing that can keep God's love away from us. And we actually, as the church, have to be willing to extend that mercy. And we have to be willing to see that there is no differentiation when it comes to sexual sin. Sexual sin is sexual sin. You know, as, as, Awful as it is to think, but someone committing paedophilia is no different to someone engaging in fornication. And I know that that sounds, you know, because this is abuse against a child we're talking about, but these are issues that hold someone enslaved. And if someone truly wants to repent from whatever sexual sin they are caught up in, there is no level, there's no level that, oh, your sexual sin is really bad so you can't get deliverance but your sexual sin is quite mild so you're all right there is no difference God is willing and able to forgive and cleanse and restore any and every type of sexual sin we read about it in the Bible King David he committed adultery with Bathsheba off the back of that he then committed murder the the, um, woman at the well, the prostitute who washed Jesus's feet, you know, um, the woman who'd had the five divorces, um, so many examples of God forgiving sexual sin. And even the Corinthians, the people of Corinthia, who, um, they were all a bit wild, you know, and they were filled with perversion, but they all got forgiven and they all got justified. And there might have been some people there who, you know, their sexual sin was quite mild and there might have been other people there whose sexual sin was very, very extreme, but they all got forgiven and they all got justified. Even though there is no sin that God cannot forgive and God's mercy, Jesus' mercy is available to all of us, we must at the same time Remember that this cost Jesus everything, absolutely everything. The thing with sexual sin is that it's a sin that involves so much pleasure. You know, sometimes, of course, it's not pleasurable. Sometimes there may be abuse involved. Sometimes, you know, the sexual sin itself is is a violation. But a lot of the time, the sexual sin that we engage in is self Bought on by ourselves it's our lustful desires it's our it's our you know um our essential needs taking over and so it's difficult because that that takes that almost that fleshly pursuit takes over and when we think about all the things that you know hung Jesus on the cross our lust hung Jesus on the cross you know we cannot take it lightly I remember when I actually came to the Lord, and I remember one occasion, um, I can't remember why I'd gone for prayer, but Jesus clearly said to me that all your dancing in the clubs, all your smoking weed, all your sleeping around, that cost me my son. Like, he said that to me. Like, what a sobering thought. And we have to remember that, that yes, there is mercy available. Yes, there is forgiveness for any kind of sexual sin, but we must be very, very sober about what our pleasure seeking and what someone else's pleasure seeker- seeking actually cost Jesus. And so our Really, our question, my question today is how do we as a church, as the body of Christ, how do we extend mercy? How do we be vessels of restoration in the name of Jesus without taking sexual sin lightly, without, you know, belittling what Jesus has done in any way and without compromising the holiness that Jesus actually wants us to walk in? And so for me, that type of um, posture that we have as a church cannot come from a place of judgment. We cannot um, reach out to a lost world. We cannot um, go after restoration by pointing a finger and saying what you're doing is wrong or that's, you know, that's disgusting or get over that or stop in your gay marriage or do this or do that. We can't judge The only way, the posture we have to walk in is by role modelling. And the first thing has to be, we have to role model sacred sexuality. Restoration will only come for the broken world when we're role modelling sacred sexuality. At this precise moment, as a church, as the church, we are in no position to judge anybody. Our own track record with sexuality is so dysfunctional that how can any of us point a finger and I'm not saying we're doing that but sometimes we do do that sometimes we see people in the world and you know for example Bruce Jenner you know who's now uh, a, a, ma- a woman and um, like the uh, stepfather of the Kardashians you can look at him and just think gross you know you can't we can we can be tempted to do that but who are we You know, when we're battling with lust in the church, battling with pornography, battling with adultery, battling with homosexuality or or fornication, how dare we point a finger at anyone who's in the papers, anyone who, you know, they don't even have God. We have God. Yet we as a body are battling with sexual dysfunction. If the divorce rate in the church is the same as the world, who are we? To point a finger at anyone and say, you don't know how to do marriage. If we, as the body, are too ashamed to talk about sex, who are we to knock all the sexual advertising that goes on? Because what are we saying about sex? We're not saying very much at all. And thank God for, you know, this kind of thing. But generally, as a body, we've been too ashamed and, you know, too... um, scared or misinformed or ignorant, whatever the word may be, uneducated, whatever, but we have not represented sex in the correct way, so we cannot point a finger at the world who they're just tapping into something that we're all naturally wired with. We are sexual beings, so what the world has done has been able to tap into that and feed that. We should have been doing the same thing. We should have been able to tap into our sexual, um, you know, uh, us as sexual beings and being able to feed our need for intimacy through good role modeling, through, you know, sharing who we are as image bearers of Christ, role modeling, healthy intimacy. That's what we should have been doing. Similarly, if our marriages are not role modeling Christ-like love and longevity and loyalty, then we can't knock... A gay couple who have been together 25 years and now want to get married. I'm not endorsing gay marriage. But what I do know is that there are gay couples have been together like 20 years 25 years, monogamous relationship, loyal to one another. And they want to know, why is it so bad for us to get married? We love one another, we're loyal to one another, and we don't see, you know, we don't always see uh, marriages in the church lasting that long. So again, even though I'm not endorsing gay marriage, but I'm saying that who are we to make those judgments Because sometimes we do, we may not say it, but we make it, make those judgments in our mind. And so um, a cultural restoration, that mandate that God has given us to, you know, multiply and be fruitful and govern, that can only happen through role modeling because of the way we have allowed sexual sin into the church and because we're in a place now where we're actually, as a church, we need restoration. But as a result of it, we've lost our authority, you know, in the natural realm. We've lost that position that the church once had when the church had such a strong relationship with the state and the church had a position. The church was role modeling. And as a result of that misuse of our position we've now come to a place where we don't really have any authority however we still have influence and it's about making the most of that influence that we can have it doesn't mean we don't have authority in the spiritual realm because even though it might look like we don't have authority in the natural we still take authority in the spiritual realm and that's what I believe is repositioning us as the body to actually now take dominion but our visible presence in society is no longer the way that it used to be and we have to accept that. However, our ability and the potential for us to be able to influence our communities, our spheres of influence and actually role model sacred sexuality and role model what it actually means to do family, what it means to have healthy intimacy, what it means to walk in sacred sexuality, we still have that opportunity to influence. And so that's what I believe God really wants us to do. And this is why it's so crucial that each and every one of us is restored because each and every one of us must be restored enough must be fully restored in order to truly influence that sphere that God has given us to steward. And we do it by walking in sacred sexuality. We do it by role modeling love the way God um, shows us to. So God ordained marriage to impact the world. And so that was his, you know, divine order that couples would create family that would take dominion, that godly offspring would fill the earth. And so that's what we should actually be doing. And this is another reason why the enemy comes to compromise that and brings in sexual sin so that godly offspring is not born. That's part of his mandate when it comes to homosexuality. If he can try and prevent two people from getting married in a covenant relationship ordained by God, then he can prevent godly children from being born and he can try and prevent the mandate of God being carried out. But the mandate for marriage is so that it would, um, you know, part of the whole idea of marriage is that that yard of intimacy that we enjoy with our spouse would actually be, um, you know, something that can bear fruit even outside of the home. So you you um, demonstrate what marriage looks like because marriage is a represent- representation of Christ's relationship with the church. And so as we're walking in the fullness of marriage, people should be able to look at christian couples whether they're gay whether they're single people should be able to look at two people that are walking in holy matrimony as christians and be able to say i want that that's what we should evoke as christians doing marriage well we should be evoking people to desire that to be able to see god's love flourish and blossom so beautifully that whatever your sexual position might be you want that for yourself in order for us to really role model sexual, um, sacred sexuality and family and purity, we must be militant about not only just uh, role modeling sacred sexuality in our own lives, but about teaching our children. I know I say it again and again and again. But if we let this current generation go, if the people, the children in this church, if they don't grow up different to how we grew up, then the same issues are just going to be repeated. So we have to be militant about teaching everyone in our midst about biblical sexuality. We have to be so, so firm and so intentional. This cannot be something that we leave to the youth leaders This cannot be something that we lead to, you know, the education system that actually defies God and doesn't even teach about creation. We cannot allow the first words about sex that our children hear to be from a heathen. There's no way we can allow that. So restoration, role modeling, restoration and role modeling sacred sexuality has to be so intentional in our homes so that we are adamant that our children and those in our sphere of influence understand about biblical sexuality without compromising. We also have to be transparent about our own sexual sin because if we're going to hide stuff, then we're going to stay enslaved. And this mandate that God has given us in order to be those that change this culture and take dominion, that mandate will not be able to be fulfilled if we do not get restored. So I would plead with you, I know that the majority of you have been on these sessions the whole way, so I'm sure you've you know had prayer and you've um, confessed stuff, but I would plead with you that you do not leave today without disclosing and confessing any, even the smallest inkling of sexual sin that you may be battling with, you must confess it today. You must repent. We must close this door. We cannot let the enemy in anymore. We must leave it here today, and it must be gone from our midst so that we can walk in true restoration. And even for those of us that have been delivered, let's talk about it. Let's shout God's fame because the whole thing with um, talking about sex in church, no one ever really does it. So no one feels great saying that, you know what, I got delivered from, you know, promiscuity because we're not meant to be talking about sex. But actually, that's a, a place where we can shout God's fame and say his power was at work in my life. What I couldn't do in my own strength, God did for me. He redeemed me. He made me new. He's so good. He delivered me from pornography. He delivered me, you know, whatever the stuff might be that you might be dealing with. You know, he delivered me from um, the, the guilt of abuse. He delivered me from homosexuality. Don't be, don't be shy. You know, there is so much richness that will come out of that testimony and it's all about glorifying him. It's about him getting the praise. I know standing here disclosing stuff about my past, you know, for me, that has been less scary than withholding any glory from God. You know, for me, it's been about giving God the glory that God is due. And if, if, if it has meant me looking Whatever, it's it's a small price to pay. And so we must be willing to talk about what God has delivered us from because that testimony will, um, will be able to be manifested in someone else's life if only we would share it. And so the bottom line is we must truly walk in love as the body of Christ without judgment, with mercy and with acceptance so that we can be Jesus to an entire generation caught up in sexual dysfunction. But we must first ensure that we are walking in sexual purity and that we are role modeling Jesus. We're role modeling his love and we're role modeling family in a way that would um, be exemplary to those around us. So what should the church's response be for those that are in sexual sin? Jude 1, 22 to 23, in the message says this. Go easy on those who hesitate in the faith. Go after those who take the wrong way. Be tender with sinners, but not soft on sin. The sin itself stinks to high heaven. So I know we know this. We, we don't endorse the sin, but we help the sinner. And with um, pornography so rampant in church, as well as in the world, there are going to be people battling with pornography. There are more than than we think, men and women. And so we have to be that place where people feel comfortable and safe enough to be able to come and say, this is what I'm battling with. And I've seen that beginning to happen, but our response to it is crucial because how we then respond to someone battling with pornography or with fornication or with, you know, um, uh, masturbation or any kind of sexual addiction, how we respond to that person will then either give permission to someone else to also confess or it will cause someone to stay silent. So we have that responsibility as well, because someone who's caught up in some kind of a sexual sin, who actually desperately wants to be free, but is scared they're going to be rejected, they'll be watching to see how the church is responding to someone else that may be courageous enough to actually confess. And how we then respond is crucial, because that will then open the doors for others to be able to come in and also um, share. People want to be part of a community who doesn't judge but loves and helps people into restoration. Galatians 6, 1-2 says this. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. He tells the spiritual ones what they should do. They should restore. And this word restore, the actual um, connotation of this word restore is the way that you would restore a broken bone and you would do it so gently and so precisely. And this is how Paul is saying in this approach that we must restore someone who's caught up in sin, not harshly not with judgment, not with condemnation, but actually with gentleness, getting to the root of that issue with precision. We can't be wishy-washy. You know, someone comes to us, you know, and says, you know, I'm really battling with pornography. Oh, just, just close your, close your internet. You know, like we can't be flippant about what the solution is we actually have to be willing to be precise and actually stand with that brother or with that sister and where it says bear one another's burdens it might get messy you know you might be inconvenienced and let's be honest you know when someone's dealing with some heavyweight sin sometimes it can get like a bit much You know, like, honestly, sometimes you can find yourself like thinking, oh, no, it's that person again. They're going to want prayer again. And maybe I'm just talking about, you know, how I sometimes battle with if I know that someone is really, really going through something, I can, you know, want to be there for that person and want to be there for that person and want to be there for that person. But if I then don't see change and I don't see improvement, I don't see them, you know, if I see them having a pity party or whatever, it, it. Refrains me from wanting to support them, and that person becomes a bit of a burden if I'm to be perfectly honest. You know, maybe no one else feels that way, but we have to still be willing to bear burdens for one another. Imagine if Jesus just said, You know what, see you later. You know, I haven't got time for you because you haven't got the right attitude. And actually, God does sometimes just leave you, but He will come alongside us and bear our burdens. And this is what we also need to do. It says here, considering yourself lest you almost also be tempted. We have to remember that any one of us can stumble given the right circumstances. You know, none of us are superior. None of us can look at someone who's battling with sexual sin or any kind of sin and think that, you know, oh dear, like get yourself together. Because given the right scenario, every single one of us is prone to stumbling. And so when it comes to bearing one another's burdens, when it comes to, you know, someone walking in sexual sin and actually wanting to come out of it, we must have discipleship in place. And I believe that more and more people are going to come and disclose stuff. I believe they are. And every single one of us here should be able to in some way disciple them, pray for them, help them, bear burdens. You know, we should. We're being equipped for that very thing. And it may mean getting messy you know, we could be dealing with rape, we could be dealing with abortion, we could be dealing with abuse, homosexuality, all of this stuff. And we have to be, obviously, we need professional help in some cases, but we have to be willing to be people that will bear one another's burdens. And a lot of the times, people don't really know how to do that. They can't put themselves in someone's position, you know, like, um, especially in homosexuality. You know, I think that, because it's such an alien uh, an alien posture, you know, because it's a, a direct kind of violation of God's original mandate, which was man and woman. So when someone chooses to have a same-sex relationship, in general, people don't know how to connect with that. And because they don't know how to connect with that, they don't know how to minister to that person. It's so alien. There's like a river of sin between you and that person. When actually the truth of the matter is, That sin is just different to your own sin. It's not like your sin is any sweeter, you know, or my sin's any sweeter. It just means that here is a sin where you actually can't, yeah, you don't know how to engage with their struggles because it is something that's quite alien, but we have to be people that are willing to actually understand how it is for a homosexual person. We have to be willing to be educated in this area to find out, as a homosexual, someone who um, is engaged in a same-sex lifestyle, what are they actually really looking for? You know, yes, we know they're looking for intimacy. We know that they're looking for acceptance and being part of a family and to really be able to belong. But how does a homosexual person really truly feel about their sexuality? You know, like um, at the end of the last session, Sid, Caroline, and I were just chatting, and without being too graphic... But, like, when you think of a homosexual person who has been a a male, who's been engaged in homosexual activity for several years, his body's going to be a mess, a complete mess. Such sordid, you know, engagement in this type of activity. How must they really feel about themselves? Like, yes, they might numb their pain. Yes, they might continue on going through the motions. But they must creep in a certain level of condemnation, a certain level of, oh my gosh, like this is what's happening to my body physically. What are we going to do with that? How are we going to minister to someone? How are we going to get to that part of someone's heart that actually in its core really just wants to be made whole? We have to be people that are willing to actually understand what a homosexual lifestyle is like for somebody. Somebody. Because otherwise how are we ever going to meet them in their need if they just become this you know this sin this sexual sin that's so far removed from our existence and from our understanding how are we ever going to be able to carry their burdens how are we ever going to be able to move alongside them There's an author called um, Philip Yancey and he's got a very, very, um, a Christian author he is. He's got a really, really close friend um, who's a homosexual. And he receives so much hate mail because of that. And he also receives other mail as well, but he receives hate mail lots. And people say to him, how can you choose to be such close friends with a homosexual? And his response is, how can my friend choose to be so close friends with a sinner like me. And that's the bottom line, you know. Maybe the homosexual community doesn't want to be friends with Christians because we're, we sometimes are judgmental. You know, sometimes we, we don't look beyond the homosexual person's sexuality. We can't get beyond the sexual preference that they have. We can't see them as image bearers of Christ. It's like this cloud hanging over their head, a homosexual cloud hanging over their head. And so when we're talking to them or we're trying to minister to them or we're thinking about them or we're, you know, looking at them, we're just seeing this cloud hanging over their head. When in actual fact, we should be able to see them as image bearers of Christ. And I have got such a long way in learning that myself. You know, I'm not standing here because I'm doing it, but I'm saying that this is, I believe, what we should be doing. This is what um, God wants us to do. And ultimately, God wants everyone's heart and there may be homosexual people in the gay community that desperately want to know God, desperately. They're hungry for God and they may never, ever, ever change their lifestyle. And we have to face up to that. We can't ransom the homosexual community into this box that if you don't give up your lifestyle, we're not going to introduce Jesus to you. And and yes, we want people to come out of their sinful lifestyle. We want that for all of us. We don't want anyone to stay enslaved. But even if they don't ever manage to do that, because it's not like the majority of them aren't trying, because you have many people in the church who are gay, who are desperately trying to change their lifestyle, but it may never happen. What are we going to do about that? Because ultimately, God wants their heart. And we can't put their sexuality on a pedestal at the sacrifice of their heart. So we have to be willing to get to their heart and show love, even if they never change their lifestyle. However, if we show them love and if we reflect Jesus and if we see them as image bearers of Christ and we accept them and we affirm them, then maybe they will change their lifestyle. And they're not going to give up a community where they belong until they're accepted in God's family. And we can't expect them to give something up before we're going to accept them. We have to accept them before, you know, them even thinking it's worth them leaving that place that they have called home, that community, you know, the gay community that's become home to them. And if we reject them, then we'll have all these Christians going to gay churches. And a, a church built on rejection is a, a church that's broken. You know, so gay churches aren't really a great idea because you have an entire community of Christians who are homosexual who have been rejected from the wider church and so have created their own church from a place of rejection. How are they as a as a company of people, how are they going to receive the fullness of Christ's love if their very foundation is built on rejection? We are Jesus's hands and feet. We are ministers of reconciliation. We have to be those that are a bridge. We cannot allow a gay church to give the gay community only what the children of God can give them as image bearers of Christ, as people that are walking in the fullness of identity. This doesn't mean, as we accept Christi- uh, as we accept the homosexual community into church, this doesn't mean we give them leadership roles. You know, this doesn't mean we endorse the, the lifestyle. It doesn't mean we allow anything like that to openly take place in church. But we still treat everyone with love and affection and honour and respect, because we too are sinners that have been redeemed. And I also think like, I think we have to be um, real. You know, I think part of the battle for the churches, they haven't, you know, like the sons of Issachar understood the times. We have to understand the times. You know, homosexuality is a a grave, um, like a very serious reality that we live in. We can't be immune to it. We have to be equipped and prepared. We have to be willing to talk about it. We have to be willing to understand that the way that people are being raised with the media, with the, um, you know, influences, the culture around us. Homosexuality is a very, in the natural, valid choice for somebody to make now. It's no longer something that's, oh, no, no, no. Now it's promoted as something that's actually quite cool, actually quite glamorous, you know. So it's going to be something that is going to be attractive to more people now than ever before, even in the church. And we have to be willing to accept that that could happen. But what do we do with someone who has been raised as a Christian, you know, they're walking with the Lord. They um, haven't stepped into the world, but they actually have same sex attraction. What are we going to do with that? Are we going to never talk about it and just leave them in that place of brokenness, in that place of confusion and struggle? Or are we going to be a place that says, this is not God's best for you, but come and be honest and be real and open up your heart and share so that we together can get to the root of the issue and actually conform you back to that image of Christ while still getting rid of those issues or those root issues that occurred in your life that caused that attraction to actually take place. Let's together do ministry and set you free. And if we as a church aren't willing to be realistic... And say that, okay, these are some of the things that people are battling with. Let's not pretend it doesn't happen. Let's actually say, okay, well, if you're battling with this, come and be honest. Come and don't die. You know, don't be broken in that place of condemnation. And when someone comes to us and says that I'm battling with the same-sex attraction, we respond in love. And we affirm them. And we say that, yes, this may have happened, but together we're going to work through it and we are going to get you to a place of restoration. Yeah, so we have to be um, merciful to those that are having same-sex attractions. We must remember that they're not actually in sin. You know, to have an attraction and to be tempted is not sin. To feed it and to um, carry out sin is obviously sin. You know, to fall prey to that temptation and give in to it is sin. But there are people, I believe, in the church who have never acted upon that attraction, have never even thought of doing anything with it. They want to get rid of it. They want it to come out of them, but they don't even know who to speak to about it. They need support. They need help. And because the church never talks about things like this, they don't even know where to turn. And because of the reality of actually these types of attractions being more and more common, because I actually think one of the reasons that sometimes people have same-sex attractions is that we are fed with so much imagery of how we, me, as a woman, how beautiful I should be how airbrushed I should be, how feminine and, you know, sexy and and toned and all of that I should be as a woman. Or a man should be, you know, you should be fit. You should be, you know, like chiseled and you should have a six pack and all of that stuff. Or you should be this type of man or that type of man or this type of woman. And so when you feel inferior because you don't meet those social standards, you can begin to look at those people that seemingly do. And begin to see them as the epitome of beauty. Them as the epitome of sensuality or perfection. And in those places, attraction is able to come in because you feel inferior and you feel that you are not womanly enough or you are not masculine enough but here you have another member of the same sex who is all the things that you see happening in the magazines who is all the things that people deem to be beautiful and so you begin to then look at that person with an attraction but actually it comes from a place of brokenness it comes from a place of inadequacy and a place of where you feel like a failure and so again the 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 areas and the things um, that cause same-sex attraction aren't necessarily lust. You know, they're not necessarily sexual encounters. They can be because someone feels inadequate, because someone feels unworthy, or feels that they were bullied at school, or feels that, you know, they've been marginalized and set to the side, or an encounter that they had, or not having parents, you know, of that sex around. All of these things that we looked at when, you know, we did session two, But some of these things can be behind an attraction, and we have to make space for that so that we have no one that's broken even in this area. And then when it comes to, you know, abuse, there are people that have been abused in the church but have never spoken about it, you know, because it might have happened in a a mild way or it may have happened in quite an extreme way, but because no one talks about sex. And if you're in a culture like mine, you know, an Asian culture, like without being flippant, it's almost part of the culture. You know, it's like women always get molested, always by relatives, you know, and I really, I really want God in some way to open a door for me because I would love to go to India and I would love to change that. I'd love to somehow be used by God to be able to say that as a culture, sexual abuse, you know, is not going to happen on our watch. But And I know it's the same for some African cultures, you know, where the the males in the family do get away with molesting the women, you know, and it kind of just happens and no one says anything about it and you don't know who to confront. Like I know the first ever time it happened to me, I I obviously knew I couldn't tell my dad, I had to tell my mum. And my mum was like, okay, well, I'll just do my best to keep him away from you. And that was it, you know, and that was the best that she could do as a woman in our culture. Because what probably would have happened, if we told my dad, my dad probably would have waited until he was drunk and then knocked this person out. Because, you know, you don't know. It's more about honour, you know. It's like, you know, you you disrespected my honour. Whereas, actually, we want to be a place where, whatever the circumstances may have been, if you have been abused, you are not the one to carry the shame. You are not the one who caused it. You are not the one who invited it. And so many times we, if we have been abused, so many times we carry the guilt of that abuse. And it can go on for years. You could actually be married and your husband doesn't even know or your wife doesn't even know that it happened to you. And you could become um, quite mechanical when it comes to marital sex. You could be somebody who doesn't even really engage in it. For you, you associate sex with your abuse, understandably. You could be somebody who becomes very controlling, You know, because you are trying to um, take back the power that you once had stolen from you. You could be someone who's very frail and very weak, full of anger. You could be angry with God. You know, we could have Christians in our church who deep down have never been able to have a connection with Jesus because they're angry that he even allowed it to happen. You know, and that's the reality. That's something that if you have suffered abuse, that's something that we do have to come and take to the Lord. Father, where were you? you know, and even though he was right there, but we need to get, anyone who's been abused needs to get that revelation that though he was right there, he was weeping, you know, he did not want it to happen, and that the whole time he was ministering to you and wanting to comfort you, and he wants you to be set free from it, he doesn't want you to be enslaved to the guilt or the shame or the the failure, you know, And even today, if there's anyone who has battled with abuse, then I plead with you that today let's really allow God to come and heal you in that area and that there may be a fresh start. And I don't, you know, again, as the church, we have to be willing to accept that it may not be an instant, you know, I'll get a prayer and job done. It might take years of, you know, ministry and comfort and coming alongside somebody. And sometimes what happens is in these messy situations, we just want people just to get over it. You know, we just want people to um, kind of stop making church um, depressing, you know. And sometimes messy situations do mean that we just have to come alongside somebody and just get messy with them to mourn with those that are mourning, to weep with those that are mourning so that one day we can all rejoice with one another. There's a scripture in Jeremiah 6.14 says, they dress the wounds of my people as though they are not serious. And sometimes as a church, we want the wounds, we just want to wrap a quick bandage around it. You know, like, okay, fine. Is that prayer, is that all right? Yeah, great. Or do you know what? I'll pass it on to Skype pass it on to the Skype team. All right. You know, like sometimes we do that because we don't want to get messy. Like, honestly, let's be real. But we are in messy times. You know, if we really, you know, imagine, let's imagine how messy Jesus got. I mean, he came and got as messy as anyone could ever get. I mean, he was the darling of heaven. And he came in the midst of all our rubbish. And sometimes we just want things to be rosy and clean. But we have to accept that in issues like abuse, that there is going to be a Maybe a long time of restoration that's needed. And we also have to really be ones that accept people that have been abused and to extend comfort to someone who's gone through that. And also being sensitive about forgiveness because sometimes we can really want a person to just, um, you know, forgive someone. You know, like, okay, well, you know, you really need to release that person now. And although forgiveness is crucial, but that takes time. Someone cannot just forgive someone who has molested them or stolen their virginity even, you know, stolen their innocence. It's not as easy as just saying to someone, you know, you need to release that person and forgive them. But we must stand with them. And in those places where they may want to share their pain and they may want to say that, you know what, I'm not ready to forgive them we stand with them we listen we let them pour out their heart obviously we don't want someone to dwell in self-pity but sometimes this process of being healed takes time but we see the fruit of that we see when we're willing not to give up on a person and we're willing to come alongside them there will be fruit there will be healing your patience will pay off and what about the husband or the family's member whose wife or, you know, the spouse whose spouse has been a victim of abuse. Difficult for them as well. They've also been violated. What about the, the person who doesn't even know how to respond to their spouse? They feel guilty because they weren't there for their spouse or they couldn't do anything to change the situation. They may even battle with um, feelings of like thinking that their spouse is unclean because they 've now been touched by another person, and this might not be something that they can obviously disclose to their spouse, but who are they going to disclose that to? who are they going to get help for? who are they going to say that you know what i 'm really battling because my husband or my wife is you know is a victim of abuse, and I'm finding it difficult to touch them. you know they, we need someone we can actually be really real about these issues, and for um, you know a spouse or someone who has been abused to really um, know you know how to not force your spouse to then have sex. You know to actually go easy on them. You know uh, really engage in non-sexual touch, engage in being comforting, engage in listening. Like all these things are important. But if we don't address them and we don't be a, if we're not a place where people can come and be open about these things, then what ends up happening is you can have a couple who have been a victim of abuse and they never truly get over it together. And we have to be people who really facilitate both the couple getting over abuse together or the single person or, you know, the child or whoever. We have to be people that really um, try and meet everyone where they are at. And also we have to pray for the person who's committed the abuse because they are battling with sexual sin. And not just sexual sin. I mean, imagine what they must feel like. Like, sometimes I just weep for paedophiles. And I know people might just be like, how can you do that? But they are obviously enslaved. You know, like, I know that there are all these rings going around. And I know that people can be desensitized. And it just becomes this perversion that you can't, um, you know, that you're desensitized to. But imagine the person who's actually enslaved in this stuff like there's no way they can feel good about themselves it might have become normal and it might have become their you know fixation and their way of um you know giving themselves sexual pleasure but the bottom line is ultimately they cannot like themselves for what they are doing anyone who's caught up in sexual sin because of the nature of sexual sin it eventually ends up rotting you on the inside and eating you up and so We have to be willing to understand that people caught up in sexual sin are broken people. However extreme that sin might be, however callous and, you know, inconsiderate and selfish as that sin might be, these are broken people who need restoration, who need to be conformed to the image of Christ and understand who they are. And so we have to pray for people that are committing abuse, even sexual abuse in marriage, you know, like there could be people Christians that are actually committing dom- domestic violence right now. You know, and so, oh, thank you, sweetie. And so we have to kind of um, be aware that that is going on. And I think that sometimes, again, I think pornography has a massive role to actually play because um, Sid touched on it last session when, you know, we were talking just about how things were for um, Sid and Caroline. And Sid mentioned about how sometimes what he would watch would have an impact on, you know, marital sex for him. And so because pornography is so rampant right now in in the church as well, you could have people that are battling with pornography and battling with, um, you know, sexual addictions or anything of that sort, and then coming home and wanting to have sex with their wives. Now, sometimes it's the flip side of that. Sometimes they don't want to have sex at all with their wives, but sometimes they do want to have sex. And so who knows if force takes place? Because a lot of the pornography that's out there glorifies rape. It glorifies violence. And if you're someone who's been watching that, then you become desensitized to the violence. You actually just see it as part and parcel of that particular, you know, theme. And so we could have people in Christian marriages that are actually battling with domestic violence because of the influence of pornography. What are we going to do about that? And because um, obviously sex in marriage is such a private thing, sometimes a a husband and wife who may be going through that, someone may not want to disclose that because it's a very private thing. But they need help. They need help. They need to be safe. You know, and there is no grounds for force in sex, in, se- in, in sex God's way. Because although the Bible says in First Corinthians 7, 1 to 5, it talks about a husband and wife giving each other their sexual rights and not withholding um, their bodies back from one another. But that has to be a willing giving, not a taking. And so there has to be a mutual agreement taking place. Force has no place in the marital bed. And so we have to encourage yada intimacy. And at the same time, a couple, a woman going through that has to know that she can come to someone in the church and she's not going to be rejected and that she's actually going to be believed and she's going to be accepted, and there's going to be help available. And I'm not sure what that help even looks like. You know, obviously, it it would be professional, but we can still come alongside. And the brothers need to be helping the, the husband who's engaging in this type of violence, because he needs help. He needs deliverance. The trust in the marriage needs to be built up again. And some marriages don't survive, you know. And, you know, out of, I guess, the one area that Um, people do allow, you know, divorce to take place is if obviously there's been adultery, but if often if there's been violence, you know, it's like a case of, well, you can't stay in the marriage, but I believe restoration is available even when domestic violence and sexual violence takes place. There's nothing that God cannot restore. God can restore families that have encountered that. And then the last topic that I just want to talk about, again, that's crucial and is a repercussion of sexual sin, but we don't talk about it, it's abortion. And because sexual sin is so rampant, so would abortion be, because it's the byproduct of sex. And so unwanted pregnancies are far more common than we would think you know because in our little sphere no one really battles with that or no one has as far as we know battled with that but i've had two abortions you know like i'm standing here and i've had two when i was in the world and i never really spoke to anyone about it and i came into the kingdom and i remember when i first like this was even before i truly gave my heart to the lord but i had started coming to church and god had already said to me that he wants me to um I stopped listening to secular music and he was just doing crazy stuff in me. And there was one night where I got so convicted about everything that I'd done, all the sexual sin that I'd carried out. And I just wept. I got on my face and I wept and I wept and I wept for the first ever time about these two lives that I had taken. Because up until that point, like I was an Asian girl. I wasn't even allowed to have boyfriends, let alone have babies, you know? And I And I did it from a place of, Promiscuity. I did it in a place of, you know, casualness, like complete disregard for a life, a vulnerable life. I did it for my own pleasure. And that was the repercussion of it. And I just didn't understand what I was doing. But then that night, I just got so convicted and I cried for these two lives that I had taken. And then over like the next 10 years, I never spoke to anybody about what I had done, and I knew that I was forgiven. I knew God had forgiven me, but I still felt guilty. I still felt as if I didn't deserve the forgiveness. The more and more that I got to know Jesus, the more I understood about the sanctity of life. And every single time, you know, as I'd grow in the Lord, I'd have this thing at the back of my heart that I had taken to lives. And the more that I got to know Jesus... I knew that I had been forgiven. But at the back of my mind, I think to myself, I'm never going to have children. I don't deserve to have children. If I gave up these two lives, why would God bless me with children? And this is recently, you know, this isn't even five years ago, six years ago. I really just did not think that I would be allowed to have children again because I gave up those two children. And... um, but then last year, I, there was another thing that was at the back of my mind. I think when I see them in heaven, like, they're going to hate me. Like, they're going to look at me and they're going to think, she's the one. You know, like, they're just, I would be so embarrassed to see them. So in my mind, I'd be like, oh, my gosh, like, I just can't cope with the moment. When I'm going to see them. How are they going to feel about me? And then um, last year, I was watching Kat Kerr. And Kat Kerr shares how, and some of you obviously know this and some of you don't. But she shares how all the children that have been aborted are in heaven and they're obviously with Jesus and they're having a field day and that the father gives us the opportunity to name the children that we aborted. And I was able to name these two children. And it was so amazing because I can't even believe the redemption. (laughs) Like who does that? Who gives you redemption in this way? But I felt so redeemed, and it felt so good, like saying "Father." <laughs> I don't know if it's a boy, and I don't know if it's a girl. But if it's a, if it's like um, could you name one of them Shiloh and one of them Izzy, Izika? And I was like, if 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 it's um a girl, could you call her Izzy for short? And I had so much freedom that day, and I wept 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 and I cried because firstly because of the redemption. Secondly, because what she shares, she says that these are children that you've aborted. They're your biggest champions. Like they pray for you. They watch you. They're like supporting you. And when I think to myself that those two lives that I actually gave up, they are my greatest champions. They're like my greatest fans. And the freedom in that, like only God can truly restore, even if we messed up, even if it was our own sin, even if it was our own callous, careless pursuit of the flesh, God in his goodness still restores. And I'm looking forward to seeing those two children. And so if you have gone through abortion, there is restoration. There is absolute restoration. There is no condemnation in those that are in Christ. I rebuke every guilt. I rebuke every condemnation. But you must confess You must confess, you must repent, you must come before God and not make any excuses and be real and just say that this is what I have done and restoration is our portion. What are we going to do when someone comes to us and says they're about to have an abortion? Because there are people, like my situation, I couldn't have had a child. It would have destroyed my family, you know. Now I guess, you know, my mum's different. But back then, my dad would have beat my mum to death if I had gone home and said I was pregnant. And there are girls, even girls in the church, who will get pregnant, and they will. I'm not trying to prophesy, but there are people, there are kids growing up in the church who will end up having an abortion, And no matter how much, as I've done in the past, say to people, please, I beg you, don't abort your child. Please, please, God will find a way. They have still gone ahead and had an abortion. What are we going to do? Are we going to reject that person? Are we going to say to them that, well, you know what? If you're going to take that life, then you're on your own. Or are we going to say, do you know what? We're still going to stand with you. We're going to stand with you. And as you hurt and as you feel that this is the only choice that you have, we're going to stand with you. And we're going to speak life over you as an image bearer of Christ, as you become conformed to the image of Christ. Once again, we're going to speak life over you. This week, when I was in Las Vegas, um, I don't know if anyone's been to Las Vegas, but it is pretty much Sin City. And it's like Leicester Square on acid. Like, it's crazy. So We we were only there a couple of nights and on the first night or the second night, whatever, one of the nights, I was walking in a place that's kind of like Leicester Square. And it's so, whatever your perversion, whatever your fix is, it's to that, it it will take you to extremes. And you had women walking around, standing around like, you know, maybe promoting a casino or promoting something or another naked pretty much. Like they would have like a little thong on and they'd have just their... um, parts of their breasts covered, but most of them were actually naked. And I just, my heart was hurting with the perversion that I saw. My heart was just hurting. And I think the thing that broke me the most was I saw two different girls in different places. And so they were dressed in that way or undressed in that way. And they were both pregnant. Like when you see life you know, a a young girl, maybe 17, 18, and life is growing inside of her. And she is standing practically naked, you know, soliciting either herself or the company that she's working for. Like everything within you breaks and is crushed. You don't even know how to process that. And so I was thinking to myself, maybe she... um, you know, was doing this as a job, and then halfway, she got pregnant, so she just had to carry on, because of the financial um, support, or whatever, so I went up to her, and I said, hey, like, um thought I was going to cry, but I was just, like, holding it in, like, so, hey, like, how long have you been doing this, thinking she might say a year, or if she said a week, and then... (laughs) I didn't have a, I didn't know what to say to that. I thought, oh my gosh, you're pregnant, clearly about five or six months pregnant and you've taken this new job with this. I couldn't process it. And so I just looked her in the eyes and I I said to her that you are blessed. Like you are blessed and I just speak life over your baby and I declare that you're going to have an incredible labor and that you are going to be such an amazing mother and you are beautiful. All I could do in that point was not divert her from her sin. I could only speak her original identity over her. That's all I could do. And that's sometimes all we are going to be able to do. But we have to be people that choose to see everyone as an image bearer of Christ, even if they choose to have an abortion, even if they choose to continue in their life of homosexuality, even if someone is abusing someone. We still, yes, we want them to come out of that lifestyle. Yes, we want to disciple them. Yes, we want to, um, you know, get them to confess and repent and all of that stuff and be restored. But the only way anyone is ever truly going to be restored is to get that revelation of who they are as image bearers of Christ. And that really is the nutshell of restoration, that we as a people, as a company of people, have to make sure that we are constantly taking people back to their original identity. And just finally, we have to be a people that not only help to restore, but we empower purity. So when someone comes into the kingdom and they are restored, they get restored, they know that they're image bearers of Christ and they know that they're created for a greater love, they're created for the most supreme love of all, how do we then role model sacred sexuality? How do we um, engage people in empowering purity? So firstly, we make sure every single person confesses their sin. They repent and they don't make excuses for their sin. They, they get to the root, we help them get to the root of that issue. Why are you in sexual sin? What is it? Is it an addiction? You know, is it a lust issue? Is it an insecurity issue? Is it something that happened to you? So we go deep with them, you know, so that they can repent. We provide accountability for them, mentorship for them. We invite them to get involved in church, not just as someone who comes and sits on a Sunday and receives, But as someone who actually joins the church community and gets healed whilst they're serving, whilst they're part of the family, whilst they're part of the community, we tell them to actually replace the, the, you know, old ways with new ways of family in the kingdom. We make sure that they are guarding their heart from every single um you know activity or every area that would take them back to temptation so whether it's tv programs whether it's friendships you know we we we, um ask them to break off every soul tie with people that they've had sexual relationships with if they have you know been abused, then we do ask them to um forgive you know we do encourage forgiveness and we um We really encourage them to keep company with those that are on fire for the Lord, you know, so that iron can sharpen iron so that people can, you know, um, get more and more acquainted with God with the help of people around them. And then finally, you we have to encourage people to know who they are in God, to discover their identity as image bearers, to really spend time in worship, spend time in the Word, spend time getting to know Jesus, because only when we behold His beauty do we get a revelation of who we actually are. And so we become whole in His presence. We rewire our desire from those things that held us hostage, our idea of intimacy, our idea of sex whether it was, um, you know, abuse or whatever, we rewire the way that we actually think about sex, how we think about ourselves, how we think about God and how we see ourselves in him. I am living proof that restoration can and does happen after every kind of sexual sin. You know, the whole shebang, abuse, abortion, promiscuity, like I can't even disclose the stuff that I have done. You know, and I know that there are people here who have also gone on the same journey with, you know, similar to me and they are living proof that God is a God of restoration where you are so made whole and restitution because I'm more innocent now than I was as a child, you know, and he does that. And I truly believe that God, I I know he's restored my spiritual virginity to me. I know that for a fact, but I would actually go as far as making the claim that he has restored my physical virginity as well. I believe that in my inmost being that I have been redeemed in that area as well. And I don't just declare that over myself. I know and I declare it with every single person that may be here who you have already engaged in sex before marriage or you've been forced to engage in sex before marriage, whatever. As we open up, um, you know, the altar for prayer Pray for spiritual virginity, pray for a restoration of your physical virginity. Whatever it is that you have battled with, whether it's same-sex attractions, whether it's guilt from abuse, whether it's, um you know, uh, uh, just an abortion, whatever it might be, whether it's lust, whatever your story may have been today, in the name of Jesus, let the Father restore you and let him rewrite your history. Today, we declare that you are going to move forward Forward. We are going to move forward as image bearers of Christ. And I don't want these sessions to end like on a downer we can rejoice you know he makes all things new and not only are we made new like me and every single one of you here we honestly I'm not even paying lip service we are going to change the face of the earth like we are going to change this generation we are called to be restored and we are going to fulfill that mandate that God has for us to be fruitful and to multiply and to take dominion and we're going to do that not just by being image bearers of Christ but by walking in the fullness of our masculinity and the fullness of our femininity. So I just bless you guys. I'm going to close in prayer and then I'm going to ask the intercessors, the beautiful intercessors, to come and just hang around here so people can get prayer. But I also want to, and, you know, we did that earlier on in the service, but I want to encourage you guys to pray for one another, you know, like really just minister to one another and pray and carry one another's burdens and make sure you release that fresh start over each other. Um, I'm going to close in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much um, for what you have done here And Lord Jesus, anything that I missed out or anything that I didn't um, illustrate correctly, I ask that you would just um, erase it from minds and hearts. And I just pray that 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 was from you, that it would sink so deep, so, so deep. And I just declare such a restoration over each and every one of us. I just thank you for such an accelerated confirmation of who we are, in you and that image bearer identity coming to fullness even in this moment I just declare complete freedom from any area of sexual sin or sexual abuse or sexual dysfunction that any one of us here in this house or associated with this house anyone that's gone through we just draw a line in the sand today we just thank you that restoration is our portion and that we walk move forward empowering purity in the fullness of our identity and being those that are truly going to steward sacred sexuality and fulfill our mandate here on earth We love you, Jesus, and we give you all the glory, and we thank you for the price that you paid in order to make restoration available to us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday.